0: Hey folks, before we get started, we have a couple of big announcements to make. Yeah, certainly the biggest one that we've teased, you've probably heard, is that we have grateful to all of our listeners who contribute regularly by Patreon, and especially those that answered the call for us building our new studio. I, have we even? Uh, we might even need to debut the name, the hallowed yes. name of this studio here, Mike.
1: Yes, uh, we are recording from the beautiful scenic Valverde, <laughs> and if you n- might recognize that name, which was of course uh, su- suggested by Patreon supporter Larry Brunswick. Oh yes. thank you, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Uh, Valverde has kind of a storied history in the world of movies. It's the fictional Latin American country that uh, that the first Predator movie took place yes. in. Yep. Um, it, it basically pops up in movies that are written by Steven D'Souza. <laughs> the bad guy in Die Hard 2 is a dictator from Valverde. Right. In the movie Commando, the dictator played by Dan Hedaya, who is deposed by Arnold and is now kidnapped Arnold's daughter. Is from Valverde, so yeah, it's it's kind of the go-to fictional country that Arnold Schwarzenegger destroys every so often. It's a mystical place, Valverde, full of tin pot
0: dictators, guerrilla warfare, and uh, the creeping threat of communism. I'm actually pretty sure that the one uh, reference that we that we we missed is there's a video game. I think it's called Super Bro Force. Yes, and I think Valverde is in Super Bro Force. It as is. Well. Yes, I think there's
1: a couple comics. There was like a Sheena, you know, she's like the the jungle lady. Uh, she had a comic that was rebooted by Devil's Due Publishing, and I guess they had that jungle story take place in Felverde. Uh Well, that's so, so great, because not only all those, this, the, the hallowed halls of people who have occupied Valverde
0: now Radio versus the Martians is one of those occupants.
1: So again, thank you, Larry Brunswick, for suggesting that uh, name for our new studio. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate it. And we also really
0: wanted to make sure for all of those people who answered the call to throw us out just money outside of Patreon to get this up off the ground. We want to take the time now to read the names of our wonderful supporters. Uh, if, we, if you can take it away, Mike. Yes, Missy Hagel. Yes, she's our top donator. We had to give her the this the uh, the top spot. Thanks so much for Missy, uh, getting a giving us a huge fat donation and making this possible. Larry Brunswick, of course, the yeah. namer of our hallowed halls. Yes, uh, Robert Kelly. You may know him from all, any of the graphics that we were using in our social media and the uh, Fire and Water Podcast
1: Network, okay. of course. Uh, James Brucker, Vigor Arntson, Donovan Ravenhall, Rune Sterling B. Taylor. Michael Simhauser, Jem Newman, Aaron Kenyon, Matt S., Ken Holt, Thomas Henderson, Carol Burlett, Ellen Leipzig, Joe Habacker, David, Derek
0: Burke, Vera Wilde, Misa McCone, Dean Jones, Gus Lindgren,
1: Mike Warbington, Hans Tweete, Ido Bosnar, Carlene Canton, Tobiah Panshin, Scott Kramer, and Margaret King and thanks everyone
0: on that list and everyone who contributes regularly to Patreon we're so happy that we are gr- that in our own studio we can rec- we can put our feet up we can take our socks off here you know we can put
1: our cigars out in the on the walls if we want to. So. We don't recommend that if you come over and record with us. But yeah, it's, it's the flexibility that every podcaster wants, that we can record without having to impose on our friends. Yes, yes. And uh, it's, it's pretty great. And that is all thanks to you who give on Patreon. And If you want to be one of these lovely people who gets listed, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or com, and please give at least a dollar a month and you can actually join this group of people who also get exclusive content, episodes, Black Ops episodes, that only subscribers on Patreon get. If I were you, I would. Oh, God. If I, I were you. If I were you. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank
0: you so much and uh, hope you enjoy the show. He was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Hex. Hex. Violence.
1: Oh, it's been too long since we've done one of these.
0: It absolutely has, and uh, I think we might have te- we might have teased to our viewers that have uh, heard a fun size episode come out before our regular episode, but now we're
1: ready to sit down and do some hex. And violence. Oh God, it's too long. I I just need me some bloody violent cowboy action. <laughs> and uh, this episode, we finally kind of get into it. The big gray elephant in the room, which is of course Jonah Hex, his time fighting in the Civil War. Yeah, and of course the omnipresent Confederate uniform.
0: It's so funny uh, because I read Jonah Hex when I was a teenager, uh, and I didn't actually, I didn't actually like make the connection of the gray jacket that he constantly wears and the fact that he was a Confederate. And it wasn't until we did this hallowed, vaunted program of ours on Hex and Violence that it became clear to me that, oh yeah, he was a Confederate who fought in the war. And it's and except for one issue that happened like three years into writing Jonah Hex, it was a total mystery as to why.
1: Yeah, they never really got into it. And I think one of the things that I kind of love about Jonah Hex are the questions that they don't answer. They actually never tell you why he started fighting in the war because as far as I can tell he's not actually from the south
0: yeah and and they and we will talk about this with the uh, the issues that we're reviewing but he's got a, he's got a mysterious past obviously and the idea is that Jonah is not necessarily
1: from any one place yeah he's kind of the guy who doesn't belong anywhere yeah that he's the guy who's constantly looking for belonging in one of these places was of course the American South during the the war and I think what was interesting about this character is that we're now in a time in our nation's current history mm. where this is incredibly politically uh, charged, it's controversial, and it really needs to be talked about. There's no way to get into Jonah Hex without talking about why he's wearing a uniform that is symbolic, even to Hex himself, of an entire race of people being subjected to slavery e- You know, years after the Civil War is over. Why does he continue to wear this thing? And I think The answer with everything that has to do with Jonah Hex is it's really complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's about first impressions. (laughs) Yes.
1: And I I think that's a big part of the character is that uh, to kind of get into a lot of the things with Hex is that this is a guy who does wear his shame on the outside. This is not a guy who carries a flag. Yep. This is not a guy who would be marching in a Charlottesville-type march. No, not at all. No, he has nothing in common with those people, and in fact... He heavily regrets having been associated with that kind of thing, that yep. he very quickly into the war realized what he was fighting for and refuses to take off that uniform in sort of an inglorious bastards kind of way. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. That this
1: is a guy who won't take his uniform off because he wants to continue to pay the social cost of the things that he's done. So if we
0: can dive right in. The first uh, mention of the backstory behind his involvement was in Weird Western Tales number 29, published August 1975, written by Michael Fleischer, of course, the man who wrote the, wrote the bulk of the series, dude. Um, art by... You'll have to help me
1: out here, Mike. I think it's Noli Peneligan. I know I'm butchering that name. And he, of course, was part of this wave of Filipino artists that came into DC Comics in mm. the 1970s, along with Hex co-creator... Um, Tony de Néstor mm-hmm. Redondo, and of course, one of my favorites, Alfredo Alcala, who did nice. a lot of the inking on Savage Sword of Conan at yeah, the yeah. time.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. The issue, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the title of this was Breakout at Fort Charlotte. Jonah Hex mounts his horse in Red Rock, Texas. A teenager calls him out from the middle of the thoroughfare, calling him a traitor, a murderer, and asking him to draw his six guns. The boy draws and fires. It misses Hex, hitting the bridle on his horse. The horse bucks and knocks Hex out with a rearing hoof. The townsfolk take him to the doctor as he lies unconscious in a feverish state, ranting about Fort Charlotte. We flash back to Christmas Day 1861, Richmond, Virginia. A young, unscarred Jonah Hex is accompanying his rebel comrade, Jeb Turnbull, back to his plantation estate on leave from the front. They're greeted by Jeb's father, Mr. Turnbull, who invites them in. They sit down for Christmas dinner, Speaking of their exploits in the war with the Yankees, suddenly an overseer bursts in to announce a slave revolt on the plantation. Hex, along with Jeb and his father, draw arms to help quell the riot. After Hex is forced to shoot and kill a charging rioter, and witnesses the cruel floggings from an overseer in retaliation for the revolt, something changes in Hex. Soon, Lincoln enacts his Emancipation Proclamation, and Jonah Hex confides to Jeb that he can no longer fight to preserve a world what's better off dead and done with. Jonah decides to surrender himself honorably to the Union commander at Fort Charlotte and wait out the war. Jeb relents and boasts that he'll see Jonah again soon, as a victor. Jonah appears in the quarters of the Union commander and, much to the Yankees' surprise, offers him his surrender. The commander tries to extract from Hex the location of the rebel encampment, only to be rebuffed by Jonah saying, I'm a prisoner of war, not a traitor to my friends. As the commander sends him to the stockade, his orderly notices red clay on Hex's horse's Hoofs, which betray the location of the rebel camp. With that, the Yankees easily capture the rebels and march them back to Fort Charlotte as prisoners. Back at the stockade, the general singles Jonah out publicly and thanks Jonah for helping him betray his rebel comrades. Hex delivers a well placed uppercut into the Yankees' treacherous mug. In solitary confinement, Jonah finds loose floorboards with a tunnel underneath and devises a plan to help his friends escape the fort. The Union captain informs his guards that he purposely created the tunnels to help set up the Rebs, and fixes to shoot them while attempting to escape, rather than be burdened with their care. Jonah rallies his troops to escape in the tunnel, and as they clear the fort, the Yankees open fire, cutting down all but Jonah and a handful of others. Hex later returns to enact his vengeance on the Union commander, exclaiming, Eat that skunk! And Mr. Turnbull vows to kill Hex in return for the betrayal of his son. Hex wakes up from the doctor's table and fixes to leave. The teenager is still outside, waiting to finish the deal. Hex obliges the boy and offers to draw down. They fire, and Jonah crumples to the dirt. As the boy leaves victorious, the old doctor pulls Hex up, unharmed. Hex faked his defeat, opting to sacrifice face for the life of an innocent boy. So, this is a big part of what, a big part of what, uh kind of starts to define the the laudable morality of Jonah Hex is that you can tell that rather than uh have his violence and his reputation um contribute to something that he cannot abide he can't stomach he would much rather become a prisoner and uh any and all uh you know any and all violence that that might bring upon himself and of course it's exploited and this is sort of a part of Jonah Hex's character is that his morality is often exploited by ruthless men uh, and, uh, and unscrupulous men, and but he always gets the blame in
1: the end. Oh, yeah, and he yeah. never does a, a lot of work to try to undo it, because I think yeah. on some level, this is the thing with Jonah, is that he always kind of feels like he deserves the shit that he gets. So yeah. he takes it. He's a guy who acts violently a lot, but he has a very long fuse, especially with people that he sees as helpless, that everything is personal with Hex, that... If uh, he doesn't want to fight an innocent, stupid kid because he's been that stupid kid. Right. And that what I kind of love is that this story is sort of about him stopping being that impulsive kid who acts out of this sense of loyalty and duty and becomes a much more cynical character that you never really learn why he joins the South Side Mm -mm. in the Civil War, why he becomes a Confederate soldier. But you imagine it's probably because of his friendship with Jeb. Yeah. That this yeah. was his best friend and he joined. And Jonah also has a tendency to side with whatever he sees as the underdog hmm. and doesn't really think things through. And that's why he's really disillusioned when he surrenders himself to that Union commander. Right. And that Union commander is just as much of a, a racist prick yes. as anything he'd seen in the South. Yep. And when you know, he's just he kinda has that same vibe of I'm fighting for the good side. Okay, well I'm gonna surrender to the real good side. And even though the North is in the right in both history and morally in terms of working to end slavery, because mm-hmm. this is of course the thing that makes the Jonah Hex desert in the first place is slavery. Yep. Yep. He wants no part of this. Yep. He still he encounters people who are marginally less racist than those he just left. And he's like, These aren't really they may be right but they're not necessarily the good guys. And that's that's the thing I think is kind of mature for a book of this type. Absolutely.
0: I think doesn't there is a point in the book where he is commenting to himself based on seeing the union captains behavior to his orderly um, it, which is who is black who is black yes is that he feels like their people don't have a home in either the north or the south so even he can see the situation that's happening right he's the guy who grows a conscience and then also sees like well this is not going there's no uh, virtuous there's no virtu- virtuous virtuous uh, victor on one side right yeah the, the no, north is, they're not benevolent
1: yeah the union is clearly in the right in terms of what they're fighting for yeah. and let's make no bones about it the the civil war was about slavery yeah it Absolutely. This is about white supremacy, right. and there's really no question about it. Th- there's no getting around it. I mean, we have a lot of these retconned neo-Confederate arguments that people yeah. make about states'. Heritage, rights. not hate. Yeah, yeah. Their heritage was hate. Yeah. And Hex got that right away in this story and says, you know, I'm not going to fight to defend a world that deserves to die. This this is not what I want to be a part of. I you know, that he he joined probably for Jeb, but when realized what the cause was, he couldn't take part in it. And a big part of it was that that slave rebellion. Mm-hmm. That you do see Jonah kill somebody, but it looks almost on accident that a rebelling slave comes at him with a weapon and Jonah turns and it almost looks like he's falling down yes. while turning yep. and shoots a guy. And it's almost this look of regret that's immediate on his face. Yeah, because the next panel basically has him
0: looking down with a revolver in his hand, sort of pointed down, almost as if he's going to drop it. Yeah.
1: yeah. There's a shame in what he's done. Yeah. And you don't see that in either Jeb, because that's kind of the blind spot he has as Jeb, but especially Quentin Turnbull, mm-hmm. who is kind of yeah. uh, Jonah Hex's Lex Luthor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, Which
0: he'll come up later, we'll talk about
1: later, of oh, course. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That at this point in the story, this is the first time we've actually seen Quentin Turnbull, hmm. that, uh, that basically Jonah Hex... Um, is being blamed for the death of this guy's son in that in that attack on Fort Charlotte. Jeb is gunned down with a Gatling gun. Jonah Hex is blamed for it, and this old plantation owner has in this comic at this point spent the last year trying to get Hex killed through all these different methods, and all you've seen of him is sort of this Dr. Claw mm. <laughs> hand and arm inside of a carriage holding this cane. Right. So it's like the movie duel or you know, you don't really see who he is, it's just a mysterious figure. Yeah. So when you see that that cane given as a gift, you said, Oh, okay, this is the guy who's trying to kill Jonah, and this is why. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, a backdoor origin story for Quentin Turnbull. Sure. But yeah, Quentin Turnbull is somebody who feels nothing about murdering or brutalizing people. No, I mean his whole his whole center of power is much like
0: the south his center of power is the economic ability to exploit the labor uh, free of charge of a whole a whole race of people that backs up his that's the reason why his business exists, right? Yeah. He's and not gonna go out in the field. And and him, like the entire cause of the South behind him, was to preserve that inequality so they could have an edge up economically on farmers from the north. That's that that is the reason why. Without slavery, they didn't have a reason they did not have a reason to exist as a s as a society, as a separate
1: nation, which is what they fought for, obviously. Yeah. And they're a separate nation. And again I I I say this a lot but yeah the 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 civil war was fought over white supremacy. Yes. That yeah. the reason that they broke off and it's written down a thousand times in in speeches including the articles of confederation um and and countless charters of the different states breaking off in the mm-hmm. secession they did so because one uh, the assault on um Harpers Ferry of course but also because of the election of Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. a noted abolitionist. Right. So, I mean, this was the final nail. They sort of realized that their way of life, which is, again, basically abusing and brutalizing an entire race of people to perform free labor labor for them, also who they could rape, murder, and brutalize with impunity, that that time was coming to an end that they may have to work their own fucking fields for once. And uh, it it comes also in, of course, what they call the so-called cornerstone speech by Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. And this is a, a couple weeks before the war actually started. Quote, our new government is founded upon exactly this idea. Its foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests on the upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world, based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. So... Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> how could that be any
0: more? How could that be any more clear than that? To be yeah. honest,
1: again, yeah. the economic truth of them—we were doing this to pre- preserve our way of life and preserve our economic freedom—is the economic freedom to, to to subjugate an entire race of people. Yes. Yeah. There's Absolutely. no getting around that, and that's the truth that Hex got out of this—that the yep. Emancipation Proclamation brought this from being this esoteric battle between a couple of people wearing different colored uniforms into being a question of slavery. And Hex actually has his own personal, we'll get into this later, sure, but sure. his own personal encounters with, with slavery. And the idea of somebody owning you, somebody having control over your destiny and being able to do whatever they want to you, that's something he can't abide. Right. And it also plays into the idea that Hex is a guy that is naturally drawn To defending the underdog.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, let's all just put a finer
0: point. Actually, um, Abraham Lincoln is in a panel in this uh, reading the the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. So they, of course, they wanted to they wanted to make it make it known that, sort of, historically speaking, and then for for Jonah as well, like this was the turning point. This was a turning point when the, the when the North put their foot down and said, like, this is the way that it should be. This is the way to correct this ill, you know, this evil that the country started with. Um, and that's that was. Immediately after that panel is when Jonah is confiding with his friend Jeb and saying, I can't do this anymore. The only honorable thing for me to do um, is to wait it out. Yeah,
1: I really think there's kind of this twofold character arc with Jonah in this. The first one is when, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation is given, and he realizes what it is that he's fighting for, and he's completely disillusioned with the South that he can't fight for this. Then the second one is when he meets the Union commander and he realizes that slavery is only one piece of this ugliness and that even if you end it, that racism is still there in the North. Right, And that's a part that a lot of uh, stories about the Civil War don't, throw out there. They want to sort of push on the the Northerns project, this sort of modernist idea of this was an enlightened group of people that weren't racist and wanted equality. And yeah, there are people like say Frederick Douglass and a handful of others that really were for racial equality, but those people were in the extreme minority. Yeah, That just because you don't want somebody to have to be forcibly working the fields for no money and you can beat them up doesn't mean you want that person to be your equal. And that's that's what he encounters here, um, that Hex is just like, fuck these people too. And I think what he kind of has sort of beaten out of him is this idea that there is always a good and bad side that's black and white, that there's an element of ugliness everywhere, and that this racism is so pervasive that it's even in the army that's trying to abolish slavery. Yeah, and that's yeah. not a thing a lot of things do. When you do a period story, you always kind of want your your heroes, especially the people who've sort of been proven right by history, to be as laudable as you want them to be in a modern context. Of but course, they really aren't. And of that's course. kind of kind of incredible for something written in
0: 1975. Well, I mean, let's not uh, forget that, of course, comic books was always considered to be a a child's medium, right, for children, a story for children, even though I think by the 70s you had plenty of people who were lifers, right, who were adults who were were into this sort of thing. Um, But uh, Jonah Hex, drawing from that same tradition, like I think we've said before, um, there was a time when there were Westerns, television programs every day of the week, the Western movies always on in the movie theater. The Western was sort of... uh, America's most preferred sort of genre fiction essentially. And this is that this is a point of distinction that Jonah Hex has with Jonah Hex has with like lots of others in the western genre from sort of the 20th century which is this sort of unforgiven Esque sort of gray moral world that Jonah Hex lives in, and yes, where there are not, there are not white hats and black black hats. There's just a bunch of robbers and assholes and clansmen, and then there's this guy, this disfigured guy in a gray coat, and that's that comes into town and gives justice the way he sees justice should be given. You know, yeah.
1: And I think that's what kind of plays into the very end of this story, which is that he's also refusing to kill somebody who could learn. Yeah, that this is a dumb kid. I was a dumb kid who could have been killed by somebody like me, but I wasn't. This kid deserves the chance to grow up and realize what an asshole he was. Well, and the fact that he's
0: willing to just like sacrifice his reputation and be like, "Oh, well, this kid's gonna run off and spin yarns and tell stories to his friends about how he was the one who killed Jonah Hex." Hex doesn't care. His he doesn't he doesn't give a shit about his reputation. Of the many things he doesn't give a shit about that's one of the things that he's willing to say, I'll take that hit just so long as this kid might be able to live and learn from his mistake.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I think that's that's kind of what he is, is that Hex is a guy who, if you are that awful, because there are some black hats in this world, yeah. um, he will deliver bloody justice to those people, but at the same time, when somebody's just stupid, I mean, he, he'll, he'll go after evil, but he won't punish ignorance in the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That somebody just needs to have the the truth slapped into them or just needs to be kind of let go. And if I have to take the hit for it, fuck it. Right. I kind of like that about Hex. Yep. He's definitely a guy who is willing to sort of take this shit on himself. Okay, folks, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Who here likes comic books? Ah! Who likes superheroes? Ah! WHO LIKES SUPERHERO COMIC BOOKS? Ah! FROM THE
0: NINETIES! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks, and though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection, issue by issue,
1: and in my own little way, try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these
0: books deserve another chance, and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at
1: 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. And we're back on Hex and Violence, talking again about Jonah Hex, the Civil War, and, of course, that Confederate uniform. And uh, we continue with the second issue that we're going to cover, which is part of the Justin Gray and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti run of the 2000s. We're talking about 2008's Jonah Hex, Volume 2, Number 36, with, of course, uh, writing by Palmiotti and Gray, with art by Rafa Garris in a story titled Seven Graves Six Feet Deep. Why, for the 40 years of his life after the Civil War ended, until his death in 1904, did Jonah Hex continue to wear his Confederate uniform? That is the very question that an unseen historian grapples with, writing about the now controversial historical figure. Framing this issue, the author explores if Hex was, as some modern writers declare, a racist mass murderer, whose legendary status should be revoked from history? Or is the answer more complicated, given the mess of contradictions that made up Hex's life? Riding home through the Tennessee woods in 1866, Hex comes upon a freed former slave woman, washing her clothes in the river. When he tries to ask for directions to the nearest town, she sees his gray Confederate uniform. She is stricken with fear and runs from him, calling for help. He tries to calm her, insisting that he doesn't mean her any harm, and that the uniform is the only clothing he has until he returns home. The woman slips on a wet rock, and she falls into the river and is carried away by its current. In an attempt to rescue the woman, Hex manages to catch her in his lasso as she tumbles over a waterfall and hits her head on the rocks, killing her instantly. And that's how the rest of the recently freed slaves from her community find Hex a tall, grim-faced man in a Confederate uniform, holding the dead body of a black woman tied up in his rope. Over his protests, they react exactly as you expect they would, beating him mercilessly within an inch of his life with their fists, feet, and fallen branches as the dead woman's husband holds her body and weeps. He's one of them, they speculate, one of the white men who's been killing them, including a former slave named Isaiah who was recently lynched. Deciding that shooting him with his own gun would only draw attention from the sound, they decide to hang the unconscious Hex, burn his uniform, and throw his body in the river. But Hex is rescued at the last second by a gang of armed southern white men on horseback who brutally and cruelly slaughter the unarmed former slaves, leaving their bodies in the mud to rot. Later, Hex awakens from his injuries to find himself in the home of Nathan Walker, the leader of the mob who murdered the former slaves. He holds court with his compatriots about the laziness of the blacks who have all but left the fields and are now, in his own words, a drain on their economy. They welcome Jonah as a hero proudly wearing his Confederate gray uniform post-war and as a fellow son of Dixie. Tensions run cold when Hex refuses to raise his glass to Nathan's toast to changing times that require a new white uniform. For the opposition to Lincoln's new laws and to strike fear into the former slaves. It's rude not to raise your glass with a man who saves your life, Nathan says. While I appreciate not being dead as a result of your intervention, Hex says, I take precautionary measures in reaction to having witnessed the cold-blooded killing of unarmed men. Hex tells them that when you're young, you make a lot of stupid decisions and join a lot of foolish causes, but that war changes your perspective no matter how proficient you are at killing. But it says he'll take his regrets to the grave and y'all be taking them with you now. <laughs> Nathan Walker reaches for a rifle above the mantelpiece and is shot through the knee by Rex's revolver and then guns down his three compatriots within moments. He forces Nathan at gunpoint back to the site of the massacre and tells them to dig seven graves six feet deep. After an initial refusal to give a proper burial to black men, Hex convinces Walker by driving a shovel deep into the wound in his knee and putting a gun to his head. Nearly finished, Walker succumbs to his wounds, and Hex finishes the last grave himself and buries the murdered former slaves. He leaves Nathan Walker unburied to rot. The historian concludes that nothing in Hex's history of killing suggests that he had any more hatred in his heart for people of color than anyone else, and speculates that while many people carry their shame inside of them, that Jonah Hex chose to war his shame on the outside and welcomed the hatred and revulsion that those gray colors would bring out in other people, and to those who extended their hand in friendship to his perceived racism would do so with their own peril. <laughs>
0: Oh, I love it. I love so much about it because the uh you wouldn't know and if you wouldn't just by describing it, but the art to this book is amazing. Everything is kind of in a weird sepia tone, so that combined with the narration of the historian, it's basically like you're seeing a flashback, you're seeing sort of this uh, this mythic mythic jonah hex uh through of yesteryear, and the only things that are break out the only colors that break out are like muzzle flashes of guns or bright red
1: blood. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. That's what I kind of love about this story is the art is so intentionally ugly and distorted to really make the violence hit home. That there's something in the the murder of these innocent people and leaving them to, to die in the mud. Like when he forces him back at gunpoint to the site of the massacre, there's like a raccoon chewing on someone to make it as yeah. horrible as possible. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of... The place that you get from sort of vigilante fiction is that the villains are just so fucking awful (laughs) that when somebody like Hex comes along, it feels really like a visceral release. And it also kind of plays into something else with Hex, which is that Hex, again, is not Batman, that Batman would have found a way to save everybody because his stories are written to give him that. Where Hex is a guy who will do anything to survive. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't take him very long
0: after he wakes up, right? In mm-hmm. the company of the in the company of the clansmen, k- he, all he needs to hear is that there are people fixing to throw on ri- white robes and go lynch some people, and he's
1: like, "Okay, it's done," and takes them all out. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. There's no. There's no pause there. No, he he has no problem taking these people out. There's this kind of rising tension where he knows going into this conversation. Okay, I know what I have to do. <laughs> But he sort of gives them a chance to back away from it, but they just keep digging. Mm -hmm. They just keep saying more and more racist shit, and they just seem more and more about just brutalizing innocent people who've just been freed from bondage, Mm -hmm. that they need to be kept in their place. And he's just like, well, fuck these people. And it's it's that same sort of thing that he gets every so often. His uniform brings that out in people, which is that... Uh, Whenever in the comics he encounters, like, an army officer, they're like, excuse me, what are you wearing, sir? (laughs) And then there's people like this, where occasionally a racist sees that and says, oh, hey, you're one of me. It's like the worst kind of shibboleth. And (laughs) Hex always kind of has that moment of, oh, fuck this. Right, right. Uh, Because he's not a guy who carries a a torch for the Confederacy. I mean, his uniform itself is always kind of tattered. Yeah. It's sort of tied together. It's not even complete. He wears, like, deerskin boots and a different belt. Yep. There's, like, holes and scratches. He wears it open. It's not buttoned up, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is not a guy who is keeping this thing pristine. No. He's not, like, a war recreationist guy. (laughs) I mean, this is a guy who, again, it's, it's that inglorious bastards thing. I don't deserve to be able to take this off. I deserve to carry this with me forever. And sometimes that means... This thing is kind of like a like a bug zapper it like it attracts mosquitoes and i gotta i gotta zap them when they pop out what it, what it's so interesting is that the
0: is that the uh um is that Jonah Hex usually doesn't leave too many witnesses like no. that's, and that's that's actually part of i think what the mystique that is being built by adding in. The this sort of omniscient narrator, this omniscient historian. I guess it's not really omniscient. It's not actually not at all omniscient. Narr- this this narrator that's sort of commenting on the the deep unknowns about the character, um, but it's doing it in this fog of. Well, no one probably ever knew about this incident with the six graves or the, with the seven graves six foot deep.
1: No one knew because hex isn't going to tell people yeah everyone's dead <laughs> so, yeah everyone's dead, and hex is the only survivor and right. that's that ongoing thing is that he doesn't like Batman get to rescue people yep. that Batman would have found a way that they probably would have been locked up in a barn, and then Batman would have freed them and had this moment at the end where but no um Jonah Hex is a guy who's always too late yeah he's always yeah. there he's unconscious when they're murdered, and he has to Try to make it right in the only way he can, and in the only way he knows how, which is violence. <laughs> and it still doesn't bring any of those people back. And here's the thing I find kind of fascinating about it is that Jonah Hex doesn't have any animosity towards the slaves. Yeah, even when they tried to lynch him, that they he see, it, there's kind of a fairness on an aspect to Jonah. Which is that he would not have any problem with them trying to. He's going to try to stop them from killing him. Because notice, he could have drawn on them at any time. Yeah. But he chooses not to. He chooses to try to talk. But I'm sorry, in the world that they're at, they're acting completely rationally. Where white men, who are probably fans of that flag and that uniform, have been murdering them in the woods. And brutalizing them because they can't give up the ghost of the Confederacy. Yeah. And- what, what is it
0: that uh, Jonah Hex was saying in one of the previous issues that we did, he goes into the house of a man who has been crippled, um, and he shows him the picture or the, the head of the elephant that mauled him, Yeah, and uh, he says, fair trade. Yeah, fair trade. That, so that's that's Jonah Hex. He understands, he, in, the, in sort of the logic of the situation, fair trade.
1: If somebody tries to murder you... You have the right to try to murder them back, and you yep. shouldn't feel bad if the person you killed got you before they died. Yep. Yep. And so he has no problem with this. He has problems with people who kill innocent people, Yeah, people who kill people who are helpless, people who kill people who just want to live their life. And he's used to being used and abused by people like this, people who have some great cause and they want to mistake him for that. And I kind of love the idea, again, of Hex being viewed as a historical figure. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because, again, part of Hex's sort of weird self-hatred that he has is he doesn't try to correct the record of people who say shit about him. Because even if he didn't do it, he still feels responsible. And this is kind of the thing with the a, a massacre at Fort Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Is that it's not his fault.
0: That's why he's ranting feverishly, you know. He's trying to is the one time
1: he's actually trying to defend himself, but of course he's in the middle of a fever dream. Yeah, he never tries to to go back and and secure the record for years that he lets people go on thinking awful things about him. Because even though he didn't open up on those those Confederate escapees, he still feels responsible for it. Yeah. Yeah. And he might as well just take the heat for it because he kind of deserves to be hated for the shit that he's done. And I kind of like the idea of viewing him as a historical figure because, yeah, he exists ostensibly in the DC universe. So, you know, in a couple hundred years, Green Lantern and Superman will be flying around. Mm -hmm. But he's never really kind of fit into that world that he might show up in a Justice League time travel story, but it would feel like a total violation to have, like, Superman show up in Jonah Hex.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And so you never get this idea of how do people in this future world look back on this guy who went around the West killing hundreds of bad guys in a Confederate uniform, and right. how could a guy <laughs> not be controversial? Yeah. Uh, especially when he goes out of his way to not defend himself to the historical record. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of find that fascinating because you, I could see that. Um, I could see him being a person of sort of a, a reverse John Brown yeah. Where people, yeah. people say, like, why would anyone wear this uniform after the war? Well, clearly, there are racists that won't give up the cause of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Because who wears a Confederate uniform now? You know, <laughs> you know, apparently fine people, according to our dear leader. Uh, but uh, of somebody who carries that flag and, and walks with those people... Knows what they're walking
0: with. No, they're signaling it to you. It can't be an ignorant stance. No. They're throwing up a flag.
1: Literally literally and figuratively, figuratively, yes. And Hex is the sort of guy that refuses to walk with them, but still doesn't believe that he deserves to take it off. And I kind of love that about his character. It's sort of like his, his scar at the same time. It's this ugliness about him that makes him look like a villain. But in many ways, he's more honorable than most of the. He's often less racist than the people around him too. Yep, yep. That uh, even even the Union soldiers and stuff like that, that he just sort of goes, "I've done horrible shit. I don't deserve forgiveness, so I won't forgive myself." And I kind of I kind of dig that about this. Um, There's
0: something about the his sort of disfigured half of his face and. Uh, not not only sort of the dual nature of the man right of him just being a merciless killer but also being this fair guy there's something about uh instead of having a third eye he's just got that second ugly eye and there's something about looking through that second ugly eye that gives him that perspective where he can have pity on the underdog and he can understand that um there there are these horrible people and terrible things happen to good people and the best you can the best you can do is try to give a little mercy to the people who need it, you know? Yeah. And the, and the, or the best you can do is then also
1: dispatch the assholes that deserve it. Oh God. Yeah. Just kind of, kind of call the herd of the really ugly, awful people. (laughs) And where you can try to spare somebody like that kid in the first story. Yeah. That, that kid isn't gone in the same way that Nathan Walker and his friends are gone. Yeah. That those guys are, are irredeemable. They just need to be thrown to the dustbin of history, mm-hmm. where that kid can grow up and become a much more smart, nuanced person, who isn't all about "I need to avenge the Confederacy." Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I think that's that's a big part of it. Is is that young people are should be allowed to be stupid to a certain degree. To the degree that they're threatening people 's lives, and then you sometimes unfortunately have to dispatch them too, but right. you spare him when you can because he doesn't get that opportunity very often it's it was, it was that episode of Doctor Who everybody lives um nobody usually it's there's no everybody lives episode <laughs> of jonah hex
0: i what I think is if i if i 'm to uh to use and and or disuse uh current slang there's something that is incredibly woke, yeah. About the idea that this being the first story, at least being written in the mid seventies, in a time was, I mean, you know, the the war had been over for a hundred years, but obviously racism then as now was still present, and it's pretty amazing, I think, for a kids' medium to be able to be continue talking about this on this on this high degree of, uh, of this level and making the hero really lay the fucking situation out pretty flat, pretty pretty evidently, right? Um, these are these are Racist assholes. These are people who would murder someone because they're different. These are people that want to create a world where they oppress everyone else. And that's why they are lumped in with, you know, throat slitters and rapists and thieves, because they have clearly shown a disregard for the humanness of other people that are different than them. You know, I just think that I think that's pretty that this could easily be like a very milk toast. Cowboys and Indians
1: kind of a story, and Jonah Hex
0: is not that at all.
1: No, it's all about bringing that that grayness into it. Again, that sort of unforgiven sort of Mm post-Western, where it isn't about good guys and bad guys. It's about how the people we often think of as good guys have this ugliness in them, and that a lot of the people who have been branded by history, or at least the racism of that time, as bad guys are often misunderstood or they're victims, I mean, again, how many movies are there with John Wayne just slaying Native Americans right, left and right? Right, Where right. you're like, you do know that you're just like, taking their land and murdering them with like, smallpox-infested blankets and right. stuff. It's like, Hex is the sort of person that is sort of drawn to the underdog. There are stories where he defends like, uh, suffragists in, like, whisk- in uh, Wyoming hmm. or protects Mormon missionaries that are being persecuted. He sort of sees whoever it is that's being spat on and kind of is pulled towards defending that, and sometimes to his detriment, because sometimes they turn out to be assholes too. (laughs) And it's the thing, is that this is a guy who just makes bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And like in this story, sometimes all he can do is clean up the mess. Yeah, It sort of reminds me of, there's a, a time I played Red Dead Redemption, where, you know how there's those random events that happen in that game? Right. Like I'm just riding along, and I see two people on horseback shooting a guy on foot running away. And what is the thing that I've been taught over and over again in video games that aggressors are the bad guys? Yeah. So I shoot down those two guys and I realize that those guys are lawmen taking down like an escaped criminal. And I'm like, fuck. (laughs) I've just done this horrible thing, and all I can do is a Jonah Hex decision at that point, which is to kill the criminal, too. Kill the witness. And (laughs) kill the person who was the bad guy in the first place, and now all I have is blood on my hands? And even though a bad guy... And a bounty, probably. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck. And it's that kind of those quick decisions. And again, I love that we never learn. Like, Hex is not willing to say why he got involved in the war. He refuses to answer that. It's uh, these quick Decisions that have these long-ranging consequences, where you're just like fuck, and now I have all these dead people around him. That I have, he has this ability to stay alive against the craziest circumstances, and all he can ever do is that last minute of like that Red Dead Redemption mop-up where you just kill (laughs) the bad guys too. But now everyone's dead. Oh,
0: Uh, and it's it's incredibly glorious. I think that um, this can be the same formula for almost every story, right? This yeah. this is basically the same formula for every story, and yet you can find such differing permutations on exploring more of Jonah Hex's character, and I cannot wait until we talk about the origin of the scar as yeah. well. That's, that's one I can't wait to get to. Yeah, yeah. oh, God. we got it's, a lot more, folks.
1: There's so much Hex. Yeah. Um, for a character who's been around since 72, uh, one of the things I've, I've always found fascinating about him is that he has so few writers. Oh, yeah. That right. really about 90% of his stories are written by, like, four people. It's awesome. That's awesome. And, like, most of those, those four people, two or three of them are really the ones who've written most of his stories. So it's kind of fascinating that he's had a very consistent... um Sort of vision behind his character for long periods of time. So. This is like Dick Tracy in that respect, actually. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, anyways, it's time for us to get to the the thing we always do, which is the confirmed Jonah Hex kill count. Oh, yes. So, uh, looking first at Weird Western Tales number twenty nine, we have the one slave who is revolting in this failed rebellion at the Turnbull plantation. Yep. Uh, Hex spins around and uh, shoots him in the stomach. Uh, and you really kind of see that look of remorse. Again, this is a killing where if he'd been ready, he might not have shot this guy. Yeah. Um, but again, this is a part of the kill count, is it's not just people that uh, Hex intentionally kills. Right. <laughs> it's also the people that he regrets. It's the fact yes. that this guy kind of drags death along with him. Yep. And it inf- infects even other people. Uh, then we also have two Union soldiers in that single panel depiction mm-hmm. of him fighting in the war. Uh, it looks kind of like there's two Union soldiers dying in front of him, but the big um, big sound effects are near his gun. Yes. Yeah. So it's sort of why he's killing them both because Jeb's kind of rooting him on at that point. It's like, get him, Jonah. <laughs> yeah. And uh then finally we have uh the commanding officer of of Fort Charlotte yep. who hex shoots in the back yes. after the massacre <laughs> which is pretty great. Hex is
0: not a klingon by the way. Not and I I love that the, the the way they wrap that up is that he's already gone and, he's already gone and done with it, and it's just a single panel and he's just like bam and then that's it. That's all you ever need to know is that some number of some amount of time Hex came back and made it right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And again, that's all he can do again. Yeah. He can come back and clean up and kill the person who deserves it for this horrible thing. He can avenge, but he very, very rarely ever gets to rescue people. Yeah. So is that four in general, four that's, in total? That's four in issue number 29 of Weird Western Tales. Okay. Then going to, that's not very much. That's not. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot for a normal person, right. but for Jonah Hex, it's kind of a slow day. <laughs> yeah. And then we have Jonah Hex, volume two, number 36. Uh, then there's Evie, who is an accidental, unintentional girl. Right, right. She's the uh, freed slave woman who's washing her clothes. So um,
0: she slipped because he she was scared of him, and yeah. so... He gets credit, unfortunately, for
1: her falling and cracking her head. She's dead because he was there. Yep. yep. And if he hadn't shown up, um, there. And I'm sorry. There's no rational, rational way that uh, you could say, "Well, she should have listened to him." No fucking way. <laughs> no. There's when a guy shows up on horseback while you're washing your clothes in the woods, and you've already had murders, Mister Confederate, you know, guy showing up. Fuck that. I'm yeah. getting the fuck out of there. You're yeah. not going to talk me down. Um, but yeah, again, that's this that sad part of him is that he tends to bring death also to people who doesn't deserve it mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. out of the, you know, sheer proximity of him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's that regret that sort of just piles on this guy. Uh, then we have the three racist murderers, Jubal and two others. Uh, two of them are shot to death with a revolver. And the third one, which is my favorite kill in the entire book. <laughs> Human shield. Yeah. where He yes. picks up this guy, like in, I think in professional wrestling, we call that like, uh, What is the name of that move um, where you sort of catch them in like... Not like a suplex. Yeah, where you kind of catch them where you're kind of holding them horizontal in front of you. Yep. And uh, and he just kind of charges at that last guy who blasts this guy in the back with a shotgun. His back just like explodes. And Hex, of course, finishes off the last guy with like a knife, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's three murders, uh, three racist murderers put into the ground. Not even put into the ground, they're just left in that cabin. No, they're left there. Fuck them. They're left to rot. (laughs) They don't deserve it. Then finally, of course, we have Nathan Walker, the leader of the gang, Mm -hmm. who um, was shot in the knee, and then uh, stabbed in the knee, uh, then stomped on the knee, (laughs) and he finally dug the graves for those murdered former slaves, and then succumbs to his wounds while digging. Yep. Uh, Hex just kind of leaves him there. And then finally, just kind of dies in one of those graves. Hex actually pulls him out of that grave and throws him against a tree, finishes burying those other slaves, and then just leaves that dude there. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that's that's, five. That's that's five. So we've got nine kills total, and from the last episode we did. God, almost a, more than a year ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, 32 we had from there, so plus 9. That's 41 kills hmm. that Jonah Hex has now confirmed Now we're getting kills. respectable. Now we're yeah. getting respectable. As, as far as serial killers go, <laughs> I think he's probably in the top 20. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more people that deserve it yeah. from Hex and, say, like Gary Ridgway <laughs> or Ted Bundy. Um, yeah, this is this is a guy who's probably thinned out the population of the West quite a bit. I would say that by the time we're done, if you look at the general population of the Western United States, you know, post-Civil War, pre-World War One, he's probably shaved off at least a good solid single percentage sure, of the sure. people who live there. Well, you can
0: alternatively say that he's kind of like the, kind of like a St. Francis of Assisi for the carrion-eating wildlife of the West, because just think about how many bodies he dropped so that vultures and rats can, you know, feed their young on. So oh, yeah. Maybe he's just like, it's just a secret, uh secret friend to the animals and that's what he's doing he's fertilizing the fertilizing the fauna population of uh he'll get Johnny Appleseed with corpses <laughs> yeah. just kind of sprinkling them around
1: so oh, oh so yeah that's what we have for this episode of of Hex and Violence um we'll be back I really hope soon
0: yeah absolutely we'll do it again soon and uh thank you guys for tuning in if you want to donate, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians. And uh, if you don't want to donate, that's fine. Um, just go to radio versus the You can comment, uh, rate and review on iTunes. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Hex and Violence is a production of Radio versus the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran. And our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.